standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 190 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and later this year I'm going to be my little Mars matron of honour. How cute is that? Oh. I have questions. I mean, I would say currently about 7 out of 10 cute. Will you be holding any puppies? Oh, I don't know. I could ask her about that. She's She seems very open to all ideas. So uh, that maybe. definitely edges towards 10 out of 10 cute. It would be kittens with my mum, though. She's very much right. more into cats, but still cute. Harder to control, I think. Mm. How, how was it like being a matron of honour? It was like herding cats. <laughs> <laughs> I think cats would pose a uh, logistical problem as well, because if you had any kind of delicate fabric on a wedding dress... Yeah. You cats are going to fuck that up, aren't they? Yeah, but dogs will just get dog juice all over it. <sighs> True. It's a minefield. I think we should rethink this, to be honest, guys. <laughs> Is dog juice slobber? Sure. Whatever you want it to be. Right, okay. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and my friend's kids are now at the age where I can fit into the shoes that they grow out of. Win. Yeah. Oh, she says, handy. owning a new pair of Converse, sort of space-style shoes. Amazing. What, are you going to get any patent leather Mary Janes? Fingers crossed. You don't really strike me as the patent leather Mary Janes kind of a gal, Hannah. With a frilly ankle sock. It's a whole new direction for Dunleavy. bow on the front. When I was little, my sister, I mean, I used to get all of the things that she had, like, later. But because I was tiny and she was a normal size, it took quite a long time. And she had a pair of shoes with two buckles, too. And I thought they were the best thing in the entire universe when I was about six and I really, really wanted to grow into them and I grew into them when I was 13. Oh. I'm Jen Offord and I realised I'd aged out of ASOS this week. I, I don't believe that, not because I know anything about ASOS, but just because ASOS is the thing that people repeatedly say to me, you should go to ASOS. I mean, apart from its bad practice when it comes to various, you know, human rights. Environmental, human rights, you know, we could go on. But I was looking at it the other day and I was like, I mean, you must have seen, because periodically we retweet them from the standard issue account, Mm -hmm. there'll be like basically a top with like no boobs in it or whatever. Nonsense articles. Yeah, just ridiculous things. I was looking for a dress the other day. And they all had, like, bits cut out of them. And I just thought, well, why, why have you gone and ruined that by cutting a bit out of it? And I thought, you are too old for this game. I watched a YouTube video the other day of two women, probably in their mid to late 20s, and they were they were very amusing. They'd bought each other the worst things off ASOS and then were making them try it on. And one of them was a pair of jeans, standard pair of white jeans. I'm already a no. But the waistband was there, and then... Mm. Below the waistband was a triangular cutout to just above the nickel line. I don't understand. So you could see the mons pubis. Is this an area now that we're showing (laughs) off to the world? I mean, my answer is no, but... (laughs) I saw someone the other day on uh, Instagram, someone I follow, who's wearing a pair of jeans, but the whole of the leg pretty much was cut out. And I was just like, why have you bothered? Why have you bothered? (laughs) What is the point? Like, there's distressed and then there's like... You're not wearing trousers. And then there's fucking freezing. Well, exactly. And I just thought, like, who's buying this shit? This is insane. Who's okay in this in the design process? I know. I'm too old for ASOS, I'll repeat it. (laughs) Coming up, I talk to the National Trust's Helen Antrobus about Beatrix Potter, Drawn to Nature, a new exhibition opening this weekend at the V&A. 
Antrobus is a fantastic surname. Isn't it? It's great. She sounds like she means business. My God, she has the most incredible hair. She looks like Lizzie Siddle. I did tell her that. She seemed to take it as a compliment. Good. I chat to Hilary Jordan and Cheryl Lulian Tan, creators and editors of, as well as contributors to Anonymous Sex, a new collection of erotic fiction. And my favourite mm. kind of sex. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking more Winter Olympics and still wondering, where is Pong Shui? And in Rated or Dated, we chat the 84 ways to forget about it as we watch 1997's Donnie Brasco. But first, levelling up in number 10 in cities and in pharmacies, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph with me, Hannah Dunleavy in Cambridge and Jen Offord in London. So, only slightly further apart than Putin and Macron at their meeting on Monday. <laughs> Did you see that photo, Jen? I didn't, but I'm imagining it now. I want to Google it immediately. It had more social distancing in it than a BBC drama. <laughs> they were at the largest table I've ever seen in my life and they were both sitting at either end and of you it. you know how I feel about that kind of social distancing. I imagine there's not a lot of love lost betwixt the two. Apparently, Macron is is the one that everyone thinks might be able to talk some sense oh. into him, but wasn't able to. I don't oh. know. Maybe it's because he's so beautiful. I don't know. So <laughs> if Macron can't charm him, who can? Who can? Well, Hannah, you might remember that in the Conservative Party's last election manifesto. Nope, me either. <laughs> <laughs> They've made a cynical pledge to give more money to parts of the country that aren't London in the hope of gaining voters in parts of the country that aren't London. They were in the market to break the so-called red wall of Labour voters in the north of the country, and they did. And I guess it kind of killed two birds with one stone, really, because in September last year, they gave the job of levelling up the UK to Michael Gove, which gave him <laughs> something else to be a bit shit at other than trying to steal the Prime Minister's job. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the levelling up logo, Hannah, but it is, I'll describe it to you, it's like a beaming bright light of the red, white and blue of the Union Jack shining from behind a map of our sceptred isle. And it is so budget, to be honest, they need to worry about levelling up their graphics department. (laughs) There has been some uneven distribution of wealth at number 10, let me tell you. But we already knew about that, didn't we? Mm. It actually looks like... They've been doing this a lot recently with their graphics, the Conservative Party. They sort of look like... Do you remember those adverts you used to get on the front of the tabloids for, like, cheap ferry tickets? They yeah. all look like that. <laughs> anyway, back to the main issue here, which is Gove's flagship white paper, which was published last week, announcing 12 bold levelling-up missions, which includes the biggest shift of power from Whitehall to local leaders in modern times and improving the rest of the country's local public transport systems so that they're closer to London standards by 2030. That's checks notes eight years away. Um, Mm. I don't know if they're aware of this and I can only speak for my own local rail monopoly, Greater Anglia, but they actually just quite significantly reduced their service because no one's using it, they say. They're also planning, (laughs) I know it is so depressing, they're also planning to restore local pride in, wait for it, 20 towns and cities, starting with Sheffield and Wolverhampton. I'm going to say... 
I know a lot of people from Sheffield and it's quite they've good. got a lot of local pride, genuinely. They are some of the most happy with where they come from, people. Will they be restoring local pride in Jaywick, I wonder? And for those of you who don't know, Jaywick is just outside Clacton-on-Sea and was three times in a row named the most deprived area in England. And I don't say that to be like, oh, what about, you know, because obviously there's pockets of deprivation everywhere. But what I will say is that, like, cities already get a lot more attention than a lot of other littler places. Oh, especially places at the seaside. Well, quite. I don't want to mock the suggestion of levelling up either. If you look at the most deprived areas of England on a map, there is a very stark difference between regions with the north of the country clearly faring worse. It is worth pointing out, however, that there is very little detail on how Mm. these ambitious targets might be met, where the money is going to come from, and it does rather ignore the fact that local authorities have faced £15 billion of cuts in government grants between 2010 and 2020. That is a lot of money to lose. That is a lot of money. It's also worth making the point that you can't really level up society while you're not only cutting public services and benefits, but you're also introducing regressive tax rises that hit lower income households disproportionately hard compared to the highest earners. And if you want to address inequality, the quickest way you could do that is by adequately taxing the people who earn the most. Yeah, levelling up has the sense of something that somebody shouted in a spitballing meeting and they went, yeah, "Yeah, let's say that and work out what it means later. Oh, yeah. I think it's fair in a lot of the things they're suggesting in the white paper. I absolutely agree with. I just don't believe that they can or will achieve those things. And Mm. I also think there is a more fundamental question to be asked about income of households and how we distribute that wealth more fairly. Mm. Yeah. Having the same amount of public transport is not the same as having affordable public transport, which is, I think, what people need more. Anyway, should we stop talking about this and talk about Carrie Johnson? Sure, let's go from... I don't know. (laughs) The sublime to the ridiculous? I don't know. Well, everybody else has been talking about her, so why the fuck not? Or have they? Because, yes, I've seen a lot of articles where people talk about people talking about Carrie Johnson. But I've seen fewer people, you know, actually talking about Carrie Johnson. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's something to do with my Twitter feed. Although, I do, to clarify, I do follow quite an eclectic bunch. She does, it's true. Both The Guardian and the BBC have been kind of consumed with the idea that criticism of the PM's wife is fuelled by sexism. In fact... Newsnight said it was criticism of a politician's wife, the likes of which we'd never seen the likes of which. Um, I guess we're ignoring Sherry Blair in that statement. You can tell from my tone that I'm not on board with a lot of this, but more on that in a bit. Johnson herself has claimed that a lot of criticism is coming from her husband's enemies within the Tory party, which may be the only thing that I'm ever likely to agree with her on. Of course, they're briefing against her. But is this treatment of her sexist? Undoubtedly, some of it is. I'd imagine there are members of the 1922 committee who fart dust and broken dreams (laughs) and believe that women should be Arcala in the lounge, Delia Smith in the kitchen and Snow White in the bedroom. I'd imagine they do see women of powerful men as Lady Macbeths and Marie Antoinette's. But does that make all criticism of a woman sexist? Of course not. 
In fact, I'd argue it's possible to be sexist and still have a valid point to make about someone's behaviour. Officer, I was just mugged by a woman with great tits, but her face was only a three. (laughs) In fact, if anyone was making a lot of sense on the subject, it was Caroline Slocum, who was on our Thatcher documentary as she worked for Thatcher and now runs the think tank on the aforementioned Newsnight. She pointed out that the reason it's easy to believe that Carrie has undue influence on high-level politics is that she's in that photograph of the May the 20th (laughs) garden party, which we have been repeatedly told was a work event. I don't know, Jen. What do you think? Sexist or not sexist? Oh, I don't know. I I try not to follow it too much, to be honest. I do think there is some sexism in there. Yeah, obviously it's easier to blame a woman than it is to blame, like, the, you know, the shit man in front of her. But, like, that also sometimes women are bellends. The Newsnight thing was weird because they had some footage of Theresa May and her husband, who I think is called Philip. Yes. And they were saying, basically, you know, it didn't happen to him. That was the implication of what they were saying when the footage was there. And I thought... But if it had happened to him, if they had said that he was putting undue influence on Theresa May, that could also be sexist. Do you know what I mean? Because it would be suggesting that she needed the support. So I just, I thought it was odd that there was so much talk about sexism when clearly I think what's driving this is just a fury with Boris Johnson. I think so, absolutely. But I think also, you know, some of the stuff that she's done has been undeniably the stuff of a bellend. Like, the, you know... <laughs> like, like work for the Tory party for all those Well, years. work for yeah. the Tory party. But also, you know, like the fucking flat thing about all the cushions and, you know, a John Lewis nightmare or whatever she said. The yeah. work of a bellend. Also, I have to say, in how much of this is down to her, but you would like to think she'd have some say over it. I found, I think it was the day after, it was that awful... The tabloids came out really hard for Boris after all of this stuff started to come out and yeah. like the sun had like a, a pie on the front cover and the Daily Mail was like, oh, stop being, you know, silly Billy's Tory party or whatever. And then the main story they ran was how Boris Johnson's very young daughter, Romy, had had COVID. And um, basically the implication was, you know, what a hard time him and Carrie Johnson were having. And I found that, because someone's briefed yeah. the paper to write that, I found that repugnant repugnant behaviour, like morally reprehensible, awful behaviour. And, you know, she's implicated in that as much as him. So I just think let's call a bellend a bellend of whatever gender they may be. Now, hang on there, Jen. I just need to get out my good news trumpet. Please do. (laughs) Right. Toot, toot. Boots has finally come round to the idea that overcharging women for emergency contraception isn't morally defensible slash a good look. Healthcare groups, campaigners and MPs have long been engaged in a battle to get the high street chain of chemists to drop the price of needing slash wanting not to be pregnant on the grounds that it is a lot of old sexist shite. And perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm paraphrasing there. Mm-hmm. The British Pregnancy Advisory Service, better known as BPAS, first launched a campaign for more affordable and accessible contraception in 2016. The following year, Superdrug lowered the cost of its emergency contraception, a move quickly followed by other pharmacies. 
but Boots took until 2018, figuring that if we'd been fucked once this week, we might as well be fucked twice. (laughs) And suggesting that lowering the cost could, and I quote, encourage inappropriate use. Silly women. Can't be trusted, can we? What what kind? How inappropriately could you use the morning after pill? Well, I think the suggestion would be that people would actually use use it as a regular form of actual contraception, but that would be a well expensive way of doing it, even if it was cheap. It really would. And I'm telling you, if it was possible to abuse it recreationally, I would have done it by now. So (laughs) I don't know. But wait, Boots has now decided that we can be trusted not to OD on them just because we can afford them and drop the price of its own brand emergency contraception from £15.99, which was the price set in 2018, to a tenner. Quick, everyone rush out and start (laughs) snorting them. Claire Murphy, chief executive of BPAS, said she was delighted that Boots is, quote, doing the right thing by women and providing emergency contraception at a significantly more affordable price. She added, the end of the grossly sexist surcharge on emergency contraception, including a huge markup on a product only women need, is a victory. I couldn't agree with her more. Yeah. Still have to get it behind the counter, but that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Absolutely. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we just can't read the room, the stadium, or indeed society as we delve into football's changing room and find that it absolutely fucking stinks. That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) No. (laughs) In so many ways. I'm referring to, of course, the predicament of Scottish football team Wraith Rovers, who play in the second tier of Scotland's professional football league. The Scottish Championship, just FYI. I knew that. I didn't. The club found themselves in hot water last week after announcing the signing of David Goodwillie, a player who was found in a civil case to have raped a woman after a night out in 2011. Denise Clare, who waived her right to anonymity, took civil action after she alleged that Goodwillie and another player, David Robertson, had raped her, but no criminal prosecution took place. Just want to say, we all know that no criminal prosecution having taken place does not mean (laughs) that something didn't happen, especially in the case of rape, where it is notoriously difficult for prosecutions to be brought. And just to clarify, they weren't at Wraith Rovers when this happened? No, they were not. They were not. The judge in her civil case found that due to an excessive intake of alcohol, Claire would have been incapable of giving meaningful consent and therefore found that she had been raped and ordered them to pay her £100,000 in damages. The club's decision did not go down too well. Friend of the podcast, writer Val McDermid, withdrew her lifelong support of the club as well as her sponsorship of the team shirt. Wraith Rovers women's team also ended their relationship with the club to play under the name, and this is a bit heartwarming actually, the McDermid ladies. Aww. Yeah, and fans also spoke out against the decision. The day after McDermott withdrew her support, the club issued a statement apologising and said that Goodwillie will not play for the Rovers and that they would enter into discussions with the player regarding his contractual position, which, you know, I think those are lines that we can all read between. Mm -hmm. We got it wrong, said the club. (laughs) No shit, said everyone else. 
Yep, and and I I'd agree with them. Yes, they absolutely did get it wrong. For what it's worth, I don't think we should cancel Wraith Rovers to err is human, and I'm very much in favour of apologies in general. Boris Johnson, you could learn something here. But I am going to look at this apology with a slightly cynical eye, however, because given that we already knew Good Willie had been judged to have raped a woman, exactly what are Rafe Rovers apologising for? Are they apologising for not knowing that rape is frowned upon or for not knowing that so many of their fans would be against it? I mean, they're not psychic, Jen, are they? How are they supposed (laughs) to know that rape is a bad thing? Well, I think, therefore, it might be good to take this opportunity to make clear to football and anyone else in any doubt (laughs) that rape is bad and that we should not send a message that we reward people who rape others with high-paying, glamorous jobs in football. To do so is an enormous insult to the one in five women who are victims of sexual violence, and it is exactly this dismissive attitude that contributes to the enormous problem that we, as a society, not as dads of daughters or brothers of sisters or sons of mothers, face together. Yeah, agreed. I just don't think... Someone wrote an article about it, actually, which is really good, which is that football is not the place to rehabilitate these men. Like, it is not the right environment no. to do that. I know. Say, you know, all right, he's been found guilty. He's he's Well, he hasn't done his time, but he's, you know, paid his penance or whatever. Therefore, what, he's off the hook? I, do, I, I mean, I think... I, I agree in a system that rehabilitates people, but football is not the right environment for that also i think there's an element of people think oh you know it's only a small club but i actually think it's more important to some degrees in small clubs because small clubs are much much more embedded in their communities absolutely than big clubs are they have you know Things where they go into schools, where they go into hospitals and visit sick kids. Now, I know big clubs do this, but big clubs don't do it on such a regular basis. I think because they don't, they don't necessarily need to court the support so much, you know. And the idea that a convicted rapist could go into school and be talking to your daughter, I find quite troubling. Well, I don't even know if he'd legally be able to do that, would he? But that's probably possibly not discussion. But I think I don't look. I. All clubs are mandated, like they have to do an element of community work. Mm. Um, like it's sort of written into, I don't know, it came, I could get boring about this, I'm not going to. I'm going to hold myself back here because we've already been talking for 50 squillion hours. But uh, yeah, all clubs are, they have to do an amount of community work. But I do think like, you're right, they are very embedded in their communities. And I would be, you know, if it were Charlton Athletic, I would be, absolutely against it in the same way and I'd like to think that other Charlton Athletic fans would too because as I said I don't I don't think you know football is a male dominated environment but I don't think you need to see a woman like you see women as a relation of you or like as an extension of you in order to empathize that rape is clearly fucking awful Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Helen Antropus, who is the co-curator of an exciting new exhibition at the V&A, Beatrix Potter, Drawn to Nature, which opens on the 12th of February. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you are also Assistant National Curator, Cultural Landscapes at the National Trust. And I wonder if we could start by you explaining to our listeners 
who maybe don't know, what the connection between Beatrix Potter and the National Trust is. The, the connection between Beatrix and the National Trust is, is really integral to her story. And I think most people see it as if they've been to visit her farmhouse at Hilltop in the Lake District, they will maybe associate the National Trust with looking after that, as we do with many properties. But Beatrix actually left over 4,000 acres of land and 14 working farms to the National Trust during her lifetime. They had a, a wonderful partnership designed to protect the Lake District. She had a lot of faith in the National Trust. And her, her dad was actually one of the first life members of the National Trust. So it's, it, it really is an organisation that during her time as a farmer and a conservationist, she saw the National Trust as the organisation that would carry on the work she had begun in the Lake District. It's a great example of her relationship with nature, and we can go on to talk about that. But I also think it's a great example of how massively ahead of her time Beatrix Potter was, to the degree that I think actually in many ways she feels quite modern. She was concerned about the environment. She was really far ahead in in science. And again, we will get to that. But I think as well, you know, she self-published, which seems quite a modern thing to do. Yeah. She also was kind of a pioneer of merchandising as well. Yeah, she absolutely was. I think in many ways, when you look at Beatrix in the context of the time she was living, there were other people doing the things she was doing. There were people looking ahead to sort of land preservation. There were women working in in the sciences and sort of doing what she was doing. But to do them all together, to have this very multifaceted, many interests, many-sided kind of life I think that in itself is is quite pioneering Mm. and particularly with the merchandise actually I don't think we really see anyone else doing what she is doing with merchandise and holding control she has with it this isn't something that she allows her publishers to do on her behalf she is right in the thick of it designing the things that she wants to see come to life and if they don't look like what she wants them to they don't go on sale and I think to see her taking that position of control that sort of very entrepreneurial persona I think is something we wouldn't expect from from someone who I think is often perceived as just quite shy and mild-mannered which mm. she absolutely unreservedly was not <laughs> <laughs> yeah with Beatrix Potter I'm going to make a statement and you can you feel free to disagree with me Science's loss was children's literature's gain here. Would it be true to say if science hadn't been so ridiculously sexist in Victorian period, then we might not have ended up knowing Beatrix Potter for the reasons that we do? That's a, re- that's a really interesting way of, way of putting it. I think, you know, we can we could perhaps say that with hindsight. I think we never know. What I find really fascinating about Beatrix is that she does these things side by side. I think there's a day in between her finding a really rare fungi specimen. And the day after she writes the Peter Rabbit letter to the son of her old governess, these happen within a day of each other. This isn't wow. a, a, a necessarily a, some things that she sort of, she tried this, it didn't work. She moves on to the next thing. She manages to blend the world of art and science and her knowledge of, you know, anatomical study and copying things in nature, all the things that have benefited her in the scientific realm are put to use within her stories. So who knows? I mean, I think she did consider going down the path of, of a scientific illustrator. Perhaps there were other women doing that at the time. When that doesn't work out, maybe this is sort of the next natural step mm. for her to take. But I, I don't know. I like to think that whatever career she pursued, her characters would have found a way onto the page eventually. Yeah. 
She was such a beautiful artist because having seen some of her, her mushroom drawings, and mushrooms are just gross. I mean, they really are. <laughs> and you just, if you see them in your garden, you're just like, oh my God, I'm going to have to tear them up. And yet, and yet her drawings of them are exquisite. They really are. She said very clearly, I can't invent, I can only copy. Now, of course, we would look at her books and think, but well, you managed to invent a rabbit losing his jacket and shoes and, <laughs> and um, ducks in bonnets. So I think a lot of us would sort of disagree with that now, but her skill at copying what what she sees and, you know, her mycology illustrations of of fungi and her anatomical drawings, you know, in the exhibition, we feature her drawings of studies of bats, you know, and, and other sort of plant specimens. They are absolutely exquisite in their detail, but also profoundly professional. You know, they, Mm. they have all the right science bits as well. Yeah. Her books, I saw a statistic, and it came from the Beatrix Potter Society, so I'm guessing it's true, is that a Beatrix Potter book is still sold every 15 seconds. As far as I know, that is true. They are still incredibly popular. And, of course, now you get um, generations interacting with the characters through film and television as well, Mm. which sort of put them on the path to explore the books, maybe when they're a little older or, or you know, um, at different stages. So the characters, I think, are still as relevant and as beloved now as they were 100 years ago. Jen, who does this podcast with us, she said she was reading some Beatrix Potter to her little girl and she said she didn't remember that they were as dark as they were. Yeah, I think that there is a, a sort of start. I mean, and again, it shows Beatrix's connection to nature. She was honest about relationships of predator and mm. prey she she shows the dark side of nature she doesn't shy away from it but there's something so beautiful in the drawings that you do sometimes forget that that exists within them so particularly in Jemima Puddle Duck's story or Squirrel Nutkin's story when he has his tail ripped off by brown owl you know they are quite violent in many ways I think we often forget that's the side I think that interest in here there is a realism in the romance of these stories and in the beauty of these stories Right, let's talk about what we can actually see when we come to the exhibit. Could you give me an example of maybe a couple of your favourite pieces? That's really hard because I always just say every, every piece. <laughs> I, I change it on an hourly basis, <laughs> my favourite object. But, the, you know, the exhibition is, is really divided into four sections. We look at her relationship with the ta- you know, city life and country life. We look at her under the microscope to her scientific studies her life as a natural storyteller, so like places as an inspiration, people as an inspiration, and then finally living nature where she kind of finds joy in the Lake District and, you know, settles there as a farmer and conservationist. So it's such a vast expanse of her life, really, and there's so many objects. And um, I particularly love looking at her sketchbooks. So we have sketchbooks, her first sketchbook at the age of nine. And, you know, oh, I've seen them. that. It's incredible. Yeah. She's so nine. She stitched together from pieces of paper and, and kind of created in that. And I, I find those early sketches really tantalising and really wonderful because you see sparks of, of the late creativity. We have one sort of little postcard that she, a pen and ink drawing, which we, we actually worked out. Because bringing these two collections of DNA and the National Trust together, we realised we were sort of finding the gaps mm. where through comparing this uh, pen and ink drawing to one in the V&A collection, we realised that we could actually date it and work out when she joined it. And it's sort of hairs in suits fishing on a riverbank. <laughs> and I just, I, and this is as a child, you know, she had this, she saw rabbits in clothing as early as that. And, um, and the, the journey of her sketchbooks 
from her holidays in the Lake District, where she's created the backdrops to stories like Benjamin Bunny. The knowledge that she's had of the fells, of the lake shores, you know, it, she shows a real emotional connection to this place. And I think it's through the sketchbooks and her journals, actually, which is another one of my favourite objects, we see the progression, we see which direction her life is going, and it is always towards nature. So, yeah, I think the sketchbooks dotted in each section of the exhibition will be really thrilling for people to see. Her parents, I saw a photograph of her parents when I was doing some research of this. And, I mean, I do appreciate that having your photograph taken, you know, in those days, <laughs> you'd had to sit still for a really long time, so you were not likely to be smiling or anything. But, man, do they look austere. In fact, her mum looks like Queen Victoria. Her mum is the archetype Victorian woman. That's what, it's quite nouveau riche, you know, they're living in a... Kensington is still a bit of a building site. It's still an up-and-coming area, but it's a fashionable area for sort of politicians, artists, writers... She lives a very a life dictated by society, by mm. calling cards. And you can tell Beatrix isn't, isn't comfortable in that world. But I think, you know, there's a lot said about Helen Potter, her mother, when I think she was just sort of a, a woman of the time. Mm. But yeah, the photographs, I think Beatrix was her, because Rupert Potter was really into photography. The family as a whole were a very creative family. You know, I think one of the questions we've been asked quite a lot during this exhibition is, was she allowed to draw? Was she allowed to paint? And absolutely, yeah, creativity was very much encouraged. She sat exams in watercolours and still life drawings. So we know that her parents actively encouraged her her artistic skills. And you know, photography was a relatively new hobby for someone you know, like Rupert Potter. And Beatrix is his favourite model, it would seem, because there's hundreds of photographs of her sat sort of staring into the distance, not smiling. And then we have a few moments where there's one favourite picture of mine from the exhibition where they, her and her brother have got spot the dog sat between them and they're both kind of smiling and looking at him. And, and so I think their family life, you know, I don't think it's as austere yeah. as, as we would believe it to be yeah. because of that Victorian kind of, you know, archetype. Yeah. That said, I mean, and again, it's because of the times. I mean, way into her 30s, independently wealthy, and they still wouldn't let her marry who she wanted to marry. It's incredible. Yes. Yeah, that's a big, another kind of big question that we have about her relationships. And, and you know, and I think as well, you know, it's about obligation as well. She was, by the time she's sort of in her 40s and she's going back and forth between her farmhouse in the Lake District and Kensington, I think she's running the household, the parents' household. She's, you know, in charge in, in many ways. I think that obligation is very, very hard to, to sort of separate yourself mm. from if that's been your role for your entire life. Um, even in, in one of the letters to her publisher, uh, Norman Warren, who obviously she had sad, sadly a, a very short engagement to before his death, she says she, he, he must have written to her about getting a new maid and a new house housekeeper and she's saying oh that was very quick make sure they're efficient and she's really fascinated <laughs> by how he's managed to acquire good servants and, and so you get a glimpse into you know and we see in this exhibition the artist the scientist the, the farmer mm. what maybe we don't see is that there is a Victorian woman in there who would have household and domestic roles yeah as a married daughter would have no, she had little rabbits with brushes just sweeping up her house. In my mind, her, <laughs> she was like Cinderella. She just had the, all of the owls were doing the graft for her. <laughs> Is there anything on show that we won't have seen before or that hasn't, it's come out of a dusty back room and, and nobody's seen it in years? There are some objects, again, you know, 
what's most exciting about this is having the two collections mm. brought together. So we're seeing things side by side. A couple of objects I'm really excited that will be sort of on show in the exhibition. One is the marriage quilt of her parents, which she kept. We know from the inventory of Baltic Gardens, she did she did sort of transport a lot of stuff into Hilltop and her home at Castle Cottage. So there must have been some connection to these objects. And one of them is the wedding quilt of her parents, which I imagine Helen Potter would have made or have been made for them. And it's huge. And, and that we don't really have space to display it at Hilltop because Hilltop is a farmhouse yeah. and it's not a museum. And so I'm really delighted that visitors get to see this fabulous Victorian quilt in its full glory and see a representation of her parents in a way that, you know, as we've just said, you know, might not have been seen before. And I'm also really excited that Beatrix's late life is put on show much more. So there are so many aspects of her life that, you know, in the community that we don't always sort of bring to light as much. Um, one of them is a, a letter going on display about her role in putting a district nurse into kind of her community and her oh, wow. village. So, yeah, so she provided the nurse. She was, it was one of the, it was the first district nurses in the area. Beatrix was absolutely instrumental in employing her. And she provided her with a car and a cottage to ensure that she could get around to sort of some of the wider farm tenants. And I think that's really important to show that, that what she was doing, not only, I think Beatrix, you know, she knew what to preserve, but she also knew what to change. Mm. And when we're talking about how, and forward thinking she was I think that's the that's the crucial element that she did want to keep some things the same but she knew when to modernize and I think the district nurse shows that she was also really open to bringing she didn't want to kind of guard the Lake District for herself she had come here on holiday and had these emotional experiences and fallen in love with it the reason she wanted to keep it green and you know out of the hands of developers you know so that these traditional farming practices and community practices could be saved but also so that others could enjoy it and there's an album a logbook from a group of girl guides in manchester who came and visited hilltop from 1928 till 1943 the same group every year and every year they produced an album and there's pictures of mrs helis came to tea that was her married name and you see the experience this group of 10-year-olds had, 10 and 11 year olds would have had from Manchester, from Charlton. And because of Beatrix, you know, she let them set up camp on one of her fields. She often helped them with tent hire. She's, you know, enabling others to have those experiences. And it's those objects that I think it's really exciting to show them mm. for the first time in a long time to put Beatrix in this wider context of, of what she did and, and what her legacy is. Yeah, because she hadn't come from a place where she, she, I mean, she did earn, earn her own money, but you know, she wasn't yeah. a, a working class girl done good. But yeah, she seems to have, yeah. I hate the expression, the common touch, but there you have it. She seems to have been able to sort of switch between classes quite, quite simply. By the time she's in the Lake District, it's that community, like you say, I don't think it's about class. I mm. think it's about the community. And yeah. I think she wants to be seen you know, she joins the Landowners Community Association and she entertains local events. And I think she wants to find a place in it. Yeah. And so I don't think her background is this very, very, very wealthy family. But they were all Lancashire industrialists. Mm. You know, they come from, they make their money in the Industrial Revolution. They, she feels that she's got a very strong Northern identity. She said that in, in her diaries. She says, you know, I'm not, she doesn't want to be seen as a Londoner and as a wealthy Londoner. So I think that helps the transition. She wants to be part of the community and that helps. And also she's 
talking to farmers mm, and laborers yeah. and and tradesmen and she writes about that you know i think at first they don't really take her seriously and then they see she's genuine and has genuine passion and interest and knowledge and i think that's when that's what she wants to do so yeah i think i think she does find it easy to blend in she's been open to conservation for a very long time it isn't something that suddenly once she owns hilltop and once mm. she owns farms around that she's interested in they have a friendship with canon warnsley who was one of the co-founders of the national trust and it was warnsley who helped her get his rabbit published so she had a very close relationship with him so he would have introduced, he introduced her to things like the herdwick sheep breeds that needed preservation as well so he plays an integral part in that her father is one of the first life members of the national trust and then and there's you know because during this time, the National Trust are um, buying up land and, you know, they buy the first, I believe, the first plot of land the National Trust buys in the Lake District at Brandall Howe. And we know that she, even when she, before she made her own money, she donated to that. I don't think it's very much, but she donates what she can to that. So she's had this interest from, you know, a youngish age, mm. from her 20s, from her 30s. I think it comes very naturally to her to act and to preserve and doing it for the right reasons, I think, of not restricting the land, of not trying to kind of hold back expansion or, or anything like that. I think it is genuinely for the people and what is best for the community. That's how I would see her involvement with it. And, you know, she's members of other societies. She's obviously at her work with the National Trust. She always argues with the National Trust. You know, we, we really showcase that relationship with the land agent of the National Trust, that poor man, the amount of letters he gets from her saying, <laughs> you've done this wrong, this isn't right, you're a dangerous man. You know, she, she has the same things. But she's also a member of the Footpaths, Commons and Open Spaces Society, so that, you know, open space is preserved as well. This is something she's really committed to, and I think she's very knowledgeable about it. It's not just that, oh, I don't want a bungalow there, I'm going to buy that field. It's very calculated in a way. Yeah. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. It's funny you say that about, about writing letters, because I just I, I discovered yesterday in my research again that Patricia Routledge is, is the... Um, the actress is the, I, I want to say chairman, president, I don't know the actor, but of the Beatrix Potter Society. Yeah, and I yeah. thought, oh, something clicked there. Yes, she is. And she's a prolific letter writer. The, yeah. the letters that she writes to, you know, her cousin Caroline, who's also a farmer, we get a lot of, you know, a sense of her kind of day-to-day life on the farm there. A lot of the letters, one of the letters that we display in the farming section is, and it's one of my favourite anecdotes, is that a newspaper had misreported Beatrix as Beatrice Webb, the wife of Sydney Webb, who was a socialist MP, and Beatrix and her husband William were very annoyed about this. She said something like she didn't want to be, she called him like an ugly little man or something. <laughs> and she was very upset and she said, actually, I think I should submit this portrait of myself. And she draws herself just next to her pig, with kind of her hands under her chin, and, and she says, you know, this is where I'm most happy. And, and those kind of letters, you see her sense of humour, you get kind of an impression of her day-to-day life. But also, like, she always draws pictures in letters, yeah. and, and that's something that continues. Given the last couple of years, Helen, um, you must be absolutely delighted to see that this is actually going to open and people are coming to see it. I absolutely cannot wait. And what an exhibition to go and see after this year. Showing, you know, for many of us during lockdowns, green space and accessing these national parks and places has been such a 
a benefit to us and we found the benefit and to see such a prolific figure or an icon from many people's childhood to see her story and her connection to nature as well I think and I hope that it, it resonates with lots of us in those ways as well I'm sure it will thank you ever so much for your time Helen this has been excellent thank you I'm joined by authors Hilary Jordan. Hello, and thanks for having us. And Cheryl Lou Lien Tan. Hello, and thanks for having us on. Also, co-creators, editors, and contributors to Anonymous Sex, a new collection of erotic fiction. Thanks very much for joining me, Hilary and Cheryl. I am reliably informed by the press information that I've received on this book, which I am reading, that the collection is groundbreaking, diverse, and indeed filthy so can you please tell me if you don't mind a little bit about the book and how it came to be because this isn't your background is it no both of us are um i guess we would call ourselves literary fiction writers who have never explicitly delved into this area of literature but we are both fans of erotica and we were talking about that one night over dinner it must have been 10 years ago and how much we enjoyed erotica when it was well written which it sometimes is not, and how we wish that there were more stories like D.H. Lawrence, stories that really engaged you and were hot at the same time. And so we thought, why not create something like that? And so we talked about it and we came up with an idea to sort of invite some of the best writers in the world to contribute to this volume. And how would we get them to do it? Well, we thought, let's make it anonymous. Let's list their names and not attribute the stories so that everyone has to guess who wrote what. And that was sort of the genesis of it. But then we got busy and we're writing novels and so forth. And we didn't have time to really get to it until the pandemic. And I'll let Cheryl take over from there. Well, I don't think that we fully thought that people wouldn't sign on unless it was anonymous. But when we thought about this and we thought about the people we wanted to invite and how some of them had never really done this explicitly before, we thought, well, you know, it'd be great if we could get Louise Erdrich to do this. It'd be great if we could get, um, you know, these Booker Prize, like, shortlisters to do this. So we thought, well, you know, it could be a fun parlor game anyway. And, you know, we would list our names and we would not list who wrote which story so the title becomes, you know, very apropos, it's Anonymous Sex. We were both very busy with our own novels. Hillary writes screenplays as well. And so years passed and each time the timing just seemed off when Hillary was busy, I was free. When I was busy, Hillary was free. And then suddenly the pandemic happened and I was in lockdown in Singapore in my childhood bedroom uh, in my mother's home going crazy. <laughs> I mean, I love my mom, but, you know, it, Singapore had a very strict lockdown. It's basically me and her for two straight months. And Hillary was in lockdown in Maine and we were on on a FaceTime call one day and we said well now we both finally have the time to do this and it would kind of rescue us from the depths of the loneliness that we were both feeling the isolation of being far from people we usually saw all the time people we loved friends we loved I mean I was lucky I was with my family in Singapore so I was surrounded by people I loved but you know I miss my friends in New York a lot and so this was the thing that we said okay let's do it and we weren't quite sure 
what response we would get. And at first we thought, well, you know, maybe if we get, you know, eight or 10 names, we can maybe show it around. But a lot of people signed up very quickly for this and they were very enthusiastic. We were, we were very surprised. The first person we asked was National Book Award winner, Julia Glass. She's a friend of ours. And when we asked her, she, she said yes right away. I think that a lot of our contributors were also just sort of in that spot of seeking that connection with somebody else at this time. And, and when we asked for them to write a story for us, they were like, yes, let's do it. So because it's not your background and it's not the background of the people that have contributed to the book, in terms of the process, where do you start? Do you just sort of like think of something that you would like to read yourself or like how do you approach that? It's sort of like the way you start any piece of fiction, really. I mean, I didn't find it, I don't know about you, Cheryl, I didn't find it that different except for the the idea that, you know, it was going to be explicitly about sex and I think we all get a little nervous when we're writing love scenes or sex scenes because we certainly wouldn't want to be named in your great awards every year, the British Bad Sex Writing Awards. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think several of our contributors mentioned that. But yeah, I think, I don't know, for myself, I just sort of started with an idea that has always intrigued me and made it sexy. Even though I've not explicitly written about sex before, my last novel, Sarong Party Girls, has a fair bit of sex in it. And I come from a very traditional Chinese Singaporean family. And my parents are very proud of me. And my dad just said the other day he wants to throw like a little book party for this book, Anonymous Sex, in his posh British club in Singapore. (laughs) And I'm like, really, dad, you want to do that? (laughs) But so I've spent my whole writing life just basically when I sit down, I have to put blinders on and think that my parents are never going to read this. This is for anything that I write, because everything that I write, unless it involves, a, you know, a nice young lady sitting down and drinking a cup of tea and like, that's it. They're going to think is kind of not what like a nice girl should write, perhaps. <laughs> um, so basically, I just approach this like I approach anything else I write. I put the blinders on. I imagine that no one else is going to read this, especially my parents. And um, I just sort of, you know, like let the pen flow. Yeah, I I really enjoyed doing this because it was freeing in a sense, partly because I really knew that nobody was going to know which story was mine. And so in that sense, you know, it's, it's a really pure kind of reading experience, you know, before Twitter, before everything, before you could re- look at the bios of any authors and, and figure out, oh, this is a man writing from this perspective, or this is like a woman whose politics are a certain way writing this novel. You're judging the story purely based on the words on the page. So do you two know which ones you both wrote or is it completely secret? No, we, we knew each other's stories and our our main editors in each country know. And I think the payroll people, and that's about it. We've kept it very, very close to the vest. We assured that, you know, our authors that we would do so. It's very important to them. Though the rights do revert to people in a year and a half and they could publish it in, a, in an anthology if they wished. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really hoping that everyone takes it to the grave. Mm. Um, I plan to. Intriguing. Well, everyone basically had to sign this contract um, saying that they would not reveal anything. I'm not quite sure what the consequences are, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and I think that everyone's really on board because they like the, they like the concept. They think it's really fun. 
And the authors themselves have been have been guessing with us. And I think that people who think that they can guess who wrote which story, they might be surprised if they knew the truth, which they won't. Our editor at Scribner thought she's like, oh, I know the styles of all these authors. I'm going to be able to guess. And I think she when she got the manuscript, she said, I want to read it blind the first time through. And when we finally gave her the list after she read it and made her guesses, she only got two out of 27 right. So uh, I think that, you know, that's kind of interesting. Our authors really did slip their skins, which as a fiction writer, I think is one of my favorite things to do. And so you really don't know. When we think about erotic fiction, I think we tend to associate it with women, sort of like porn is for men and erotic fiction is the sort of lesser version of that. I wondered, who do you see your book? Who do you think it's aimed at? As far as I'm concerned, it's for everybody. I think that the majority of fiction in general is read by women, something like 60%, right? But there are stories for everyone in this collection. Well, I think it's about labeling, isn't it? Porn versus erotic fiction. It, you know, it can be the same thing. It might not be, but it's sort of, you know, walking to a bookshop and, you know, what is women's literature? You know, what is the women's fiction section? What is, you know, this section? So I, I think it's just a, a matter of labeling, but I really hope that everyone reads this book because it's really written for everybody. We have stories across the entire spectrum. We have a very international roster of people. We have stories set all over the world in Hong Kong and Nigeria and Malaysia and India. And we have writers from all over the world. You know, Helen Oyemi is, she's British, but she's, you know, she's, she's based somewhere else in Europe right now. And the appeal, I think, of this book is it's such a vast spectrum of uh, sexual experience and exploring desire across this, like, across you know, geographical boundaries. There's all sorts of sex in this book. There's like sex in the afterlife. There's sex among teenagers. There's sex, you know, among married people or people stepping outside of their marriages. There's gay sex or straight sex. There's, you know, there's everything in here. So I I hate to say that, you know, there's something in it for everyone because that makes it sound kind of like like we're we're a supermarket. But yeah, there, I mean, we really have stories across the spectrum. So I remember the absolute furore around, I don't know if it was the same in the States, but in the UK, certainly around Fifty Shades of Grey, which is probably one of the most popular or accessible, or I don't know, it's one of the big sort of successes of the genre in recent years. And the reaction here certainly was very dismissively all of these housewives basically getting their rocks off. Do you think that it comes as a surprise to the world that women, let alone middle-aged women, enjoy thinking about, talking about, reading about sex? Well, boy, if it does, that's that's very sad. <laughs> I mean, and of course, in here in America too, we have our conservatives and our people that would seek to to make sex about shame and this this book is sex positive it's unapologetically so and yeah some a lot of the stories were written by middle-aged women uh or you know a good chunk of them were and i'm sure a lot of middle-aged women will read it but i i think as cheryl said you know there's straight sex gay sex there's young sex old sex everything in between and I guess we both are very resistant to the idea of being put in any kind of box, which people tend to do, as you're pointing out. And also our, our writers really come from a wide range of ages. You know, they're writers in their early 30s, all the way up to 80. I think what's really great about this is that you, you're not going to approach the story going like, oh, you know, a 32-year-old wrote this or like, oh, an 80-year-old wrote this. It's like, it's just a story. And it's great because we wanted this to be a very kind of freeing 
uh, experience for people and for it to be really fun at a time when like things were really lonely and kind of not fun. And it turned out to be that way. I think for a lot of people, we got people who said yes and then started writing their stories right away because they were so excited about it. It was it was very lovely to to hear little things like that. So we're hoping that this debunks any sort of theory that that only people in their 20s or only people in a certain age group or a certain type of demographic or, you know, come from a certain type of culture really enjoy sex. You know, the one thread that goes through all of this is just sort of the exploring the, the, the beauty of desire and sex in its many forms. I loved what one of our contributors, Jason Reynolds, said in answer to another question, but he was talking about how he writes about what's deeply human. And so this is no different. Sex is no different than any other deeply human topic. For him, it's sort of all of one piece. And I thought that was really beautiful. And I think British people are quite conservative, not in the political way, but conservative when it comes to like attitudes around sex. I genuinely believe that we drink so much because we couldn't continue to create the British population if we didn't. I genuinely believe <laughs> we drink so much because otherwise none of us would ever have sex, basically. That's particularly funny because I love British sex scandals. Like you're you have the best <laughs> political sex scandals ever because they're like hilarious and they all involve some sort of like random weird stuff happening or people stepping out of their marriages or whatever and it's always something very bombastic and it's funny I I I think that Singapore where I grew up is kind of the same thing like you know we used to be a British colony for a long time and so I think that a lot of our attitudes regarding sex are shaped a little bit by that but Mm -hmm. also very traditional Asian cultural attitudes as well and sort of this sort of patriarchy that still exists there and so when you have something like that I think it's kind of interesting and an interesting situation because you have this sort of pressure cooker situation where obviously people want sex but obviously they feel they can't talk about it. They can't write about it. They can't publicly say they like sex. And so it creates a sort of like pressure cooker or secrecy situation where sex is explored sort of like, you know, in the underbelly or whatever. And so I, I find those areas, I found that in my, the most interesting places to explore in my own writing. And also, you know, I like seeing some of it come out in this book as well. I totally agree with you. I think that's what we do in Britain the pressure builds up, builds up, builds up. We get horribly drunk and we make bad life choices. So that's how we deal with that situation. <laughs> but, but I'm interested in that because, you know, it's a huge news story here. Like all these housewives are like picking up this, you know, this dirty book basically in the supermarket when they go and do their food shop for their kids and their husband and whatever. And like, you know, so I'm really interested in that. Was there a different reaction in the States? to Fifty Shades? Was it just sort of like, did no one really care? I think it was the same. I mean, I I didn't read it. I actually really didn't read those books. And it was also sort of right around the time when you could download books as opposed Mm. to going into a store and picking that erotic book and taking up to the the register. So while not being able to comment on the quality of that book, I personally love the fact that it just freed people up to buy erotica if they wanted to. And that, that was part of the story here. I think in the States, there was some of that reaction in the beginning. I remember these sort of, you know, fancy Upper East Side, like women, like it was one woman I know, she said, my, my, my group of friends were passing this book around and we're like secretly reading it and our husbands don't know. It was like this something naughty thing that was happening. And I remember sitting on the train once and this woman was kind of like hunched over her like Kindle or something and sort of like covering it. And I looked over and she was reading Fifty Shades, but she clearly didn't want people to see that she was. And I was like, what's the shame? 
in that. And in Singapore, it was even more extreme because in, I remember that the book was shrink wrapped in bookstores with a sticker on it that you had to be 18 in order to purchase and slash open the book. Do you know what? I, I've actually read all of them. And the reason for that, because now I feel like I have to qualify why I read all of them. But <laughs> I was off work for a week with tonsillitis and my housemate at the time was a journalist and he'd been sent them by like the publishers and he brought them home with him so I was like well I'm going to read them and see what all the fuss is about and actually I watched the film (laughs) on a flight back from (laughs) back from New York and I had two men sitting either side of me and one of them was this like old guy with like a long grey ponytail and boy did he want to talk to me after I'd watched (laughs) (laughs) I'm so embarrassed there was way more sex than I thought there was going to be there was an an article in the Guardian this week actually it was about um, how the romantic fiction genre has like really flourished during the pandemic and it was a really, really sneering and kind of snobby article. You know, it's not my genre of choice, but I think it is ridiculous to dismiss an entire genre of anything just because you don't happen to like it. Like, I think we have to all accept that there are things that are not for us, right? And that's okay. Do you think there is still a bit of a stigma in writing erotica or romantic fiction? And and why do you think it is sort of looked upon as a lesser art form? I think mainly because women are primarily the readers yeah. of, of and romantic cre- and, and creators, and exactly. And so that's that's you know an easy way to to dismiss women as being more feeble-minded, perhaps. <laughs> and so that's just traditionally what I think that is. But you know, every every genre has been dissed. I, you know, I, everyone has met that obnoxious writer who will tell you outright, you know, me, I, I write nonfiction as well. Oh, I don't read nonfiction. Oh, I don't read you know mysteries. Oh, I don't read erotica. Oh, I don't read literature set in like whatever. There are a lot of people with biases out there, and unfortunately, you know, it's easy to target. Rom- romantic fiction and erotic fiction because it's easy to think of it as a slight because oh it's about romance as opposed to like it's about like a family drama that's been like you know three decades or something but as you said before one of your contributors said it's it's deeply deeply human jason reynolds yeah, yeah. we all want to love don't we we all want to be loved in in you know not necessarily in a romantic way but in in some way we want that right we all want to have sex that was one a- of my first exposures to uh, erotica was actually a british author john cleland who wrote the memoirs of fanny hill it was written what in the 1700s and it was one of those dirty books that everyone was mm. passing around but it's absolutely joyful you know and that's the other thing that that sort of goes to what jason spoke about is that it is deeply human and it can be joyful. And I, that book has stayed with me. I was chatting with uh, Jamie Adenberg recently, who has a wonderful memoir out. Everybody should buy it. I came all this way to meet you. And we were talking about sex on stage at, a, at this literary festival. And she said, it's important to me to write a sex scene about a character because it shows a different aspect of a character. It's just like, what does that character eat? How does she sit down to a meal? How does she have sex? That reveals something about a character. You know, when Jason says it's deeply human, it that is what sex is. It's something that everybody does. It's not anything more or less special than drinking a cup of really good tea i think (laughs) (laughs) as discussed off air delighted to say that both hillary and Cheryl have great taste in tea (laughs) and hopefully great taste in erotic fiction as well because anonymous sex was published on february the 3rd and is available in all good bookshops and i assume 
online. What have you got coming up next? I am actually working on my third novel, which I just recently started after a long time dithering about what it was going to be about, and uh, a couple of screenplays. And Cheryl, what about you? I'm working on my next novel as well. When I'm not writing, putting together a sex book, all my books are, they tend to be set in Singapore, where I'm from. I've done three books, all set in Singapore now. And the next book is also set in Singapore. It's a novel. And yeah, I hope to get back there soon. And where can we follow you guys if you're on any kind of social media? Um, Well, my website is hillaryjordan.com. And I'm on Instagram, which I probably use the most as scribblegirl underline bkln which is for brooklyn where i live and under my name on twitter and my website is my full name cherylluliantan.com and also i am cherylton88 on instagram and twitter and i also have a facebook author page uh, which is my full name look it up we have lots of virtual events including a lovely valentine's day event at politics and prose in dc and they're all virtual so people anywhere can can kind of tune in and listen we have various contributors from all over the world joining us on these various events hillary cheryl thank you so much for joining me thank you so much i hope All of our interviewers are as wonderful and fun as you've been. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we land an exquisite triple axel as we discuss all things women's sport. What's happening in Beijing, I hear you ask? Well, at the time of recording, it was day four of the Winter Olympics and Great Britain were not yet on the medal table. But all that was about to change, potentially. Why, I hear you ask? Well, because teenager Kirsty Muir had qualified for the Big Air final. What's Big Air? You ask a lot of questions, don't you? Well, there's a Big Air for snowboarding and one for skiing. 17-year-old Muir was competing in the skiing discipline, and basically what it involves is leaping off a ramp of over 50 metres high and doing some flips and rotations, etc. And then you get scored on the complexity, the size, whilst airborne. Unfortunately, it didn't end so well for us. Muir finished fifth and also, unfortunately, both Katie Summerhays and James Woods missed out. So too did Katie Ormerod on a place in the snowboard slope-style final a few days previously. What about the curling? Well, also unfortunately, our mixed team lost 6-5 to Norway in a tense semi-final and went on to play Sweden for bronze, but well, we lost. So we we're still without a medal, guys. Elia Smedding became the first Briton to compete in the long track speed skating in 42 years earlier this week. And partner Cornelius Kirsten followed her today, as I'm recording on Tuesday, and he finished 19th in the final. There is still hope. We've still got the bobsleigh, skeleton and some alpine skiing yet to go. There could be medals yet. But honestly, who cares? There's still a ton of curling to watch, biathlon and figure skating. So there is loads to enjoy. Let's stay in China for a minute though for very different reasons where the ongoing controversy around tennis player Pong Shui continues. For anyone who's not up to date on this, fellow tennis players raised the alarm about Pong Shui after she basically disappeared from public life following an allegation of sexual assault against former Chinese Vice Premier Zhang Gaoli. 
Subsequently, the International Olympics Committee were allowed to speak with Shui to prove that she was absolutely not being held against her will, and an interview with the former World Number 14 was published by French media outlet L'Equipe this week. In the interview, she says there's been a huge misunderstanding, and in fact, in a now-deleted social media post, she never even made this allegation, she says. Shui told the interviewer, who had to submit questions in advance of the interview and conducted the interview, at the Winter Olympics and in the presence of a representative of China's Olympic Committee who translated her replies, she said she was living a totally normal life and she didn't understand what all the fuss was about. And she continued, given her age, 36, injuries and a long pandemic and forced break, it would be pretty difficult to get match fit again. And then off she went and she was photographed by the world's media hanging out with Thomas Buck, president of the IOC. So, you know, she's fine so long as she's with someone from the world's various Olympic committees. I mean, that does seem a bit weird, doesn't it? she's only ever seen when she's with someone from an Olympic committee? Clearly the Women's Tennis Association thinks so because it has said that its concerns are not alleviated any by said interview, with Chairman Steve Simon adding, as we would with any of our players globally, we have called for a formal investigation into the allegations of sexual assault by the appropriate authorities and an opportunity for the WTA to meet with Pong privately to discuss her situation. So we'll see what happens now, I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, and lo, it has come to pass that Australia have comprehensively whooped England in the ashes. This comes after the wet weather situation in the 2020 Games in Adelaide, finishing with three successive defeats in one-day internationals, the final of which Australia took an eight-wicket victory with 13.4 overs to go as England went all out at 163. And this is after drawing the Test match so sad times for us and congratulations to Australia. Right, that's all from me this week. Does anyone know what the highest possible score in figure skating is, please? Asking for a friend. That friend is me. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film that I actually saw in a cinema when it came out. And when we left, the woman behind us said to her boyfriend, I told you we should have gone to see Anna fucking Conda. <laughs> <laughs> Did we watch this week? Oh, yeah. There aren't as many big snakes in what we watched. We should totally watch Anna Conda, though, coming up, because it must be coming up if I, the two were at the same time in the cinema. Yes, I'm, I mean, I'm game. This week, in fact, we didn't watch Anaconda. We watched 1997 mobster movie Donnie Brasco, loosely based on the true story of undercover FBI agent Joe Pistone's almost too successful infiltration of a major New York mafia family in the 1970s under the alias Don Brasco. Cue a cattle shed's worth of leather blazers and one truly extraordinary velour tracksuit. Yes, I want it. It's directed by Mike Newell and clearly a straight line from his time at the helm of Four Weddings, Four and, a weddings and a Funeral. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want to see the guy who did Four Weddings and a Funeral do a mobster flick? I was really trying to think, like, where do I know that name? Where do I know that name yesterday? But I was too tired to actually bother looking. So thank you for clearing that up <laughs> for me, Mickey. That is strange. I mean, in fairness, there are several times in Donnie Brasco where a character could genuinely say, fuck, fuck, fuckity fuck, but forget about it. 
With a screenplay by Paul Atanasio, the film is adapted from Donnie Brasco, My Undercover Life in the Mafia, which is Pistone's 1988 book, co-written with Richard Woodley, and it stars Johnny Depp and Al Pacino. So look, right, I have seen a photo of the real Joe Pistone slash Donnie Brasco, and I mean no offence when I say he must have been <laughs> beyond chuffed with the casting of Johnny Depp, at that point still in heartthrob mode rather than looking like a pile of skunky washing, because it's basically... <laughs> Akin to me being played by J-Lo. Anyway, Brasco gets him in with old-time wise guy Benjamin Ruggiero, a.k.a. Lefty, a.k.a. a whole load of other nicknames, including Horsecock, so well done yeah. Lefty, who I can only presume was also delighted with the casting because Al Pacino, or at least he would have been delighted if he wasn't dead. The cast is, in fact, across the board excellent, to be fair, with brilliant turns from Bruno Kirby, Anne Hesch, Michael Madsen, Paul Giamatti and Robert Miano. Yeah, as you can tell from that list, it's not exactly brimming with women. Mobster movies gonna mobster. Donnie Brasco premiered on February the 24th, 1997 and got its general release on February the 28th. It was a big box office success, taking $124.9 million against its $35 million budget and critics liked it a lot. The Academy liked it too, and it was nominated for the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, but lost out to LA Confidential. Now, Hannah, you answered this question at the top, but I'm going to ask you both, had you seen it before? No, I had not, no. I mean, I'd seen it subsequent to seeing it at cinema as well, I think, on the telly, or someone bought it back from a video shop or something. I had, yeah. And I'm right in saying that you both quite like a gangster film, right? Yeah, Goodfellas is up there, yeah. I used to. Used to. I think that's interesting, Hannah, and I think we're going to come back to that. But first, the plot. FBI agent Joe Pistone infiltrates the mob, posing as low-level hood Donnie Brasco, and does such a good job, it's hard to tell him from the real thing. I mean, his wife, Anne Hesch, and kids certainly have issues, and Pistone slash Brasco winds up all turned round when it comes to where his loyalty lies. Seeing the spark of someone he can train up to adulation, perpetually down on his luck and lonely wise guy, Lefty Ruggiero, takes Donnie under his wing, becoming his mafia mentor, and the two actually go on to forge a genuine bond. And therein lies the rub. As Pistone slash Brasco gets more and more embroiled in the Bonanno family, Bonanno, Bonanno... Oh, we're back to Mickey not being able to pronounce anything that isn't Lancashire. Crime family's deadly doings, vouched for by Lefty. The realisation that coming out of the operation means certain death for Lefty makes everything harder for Pistone, who is blurring more and more into Donnie Brasco every day. Because, and I realise I am about to fully wet my powder here, what this film does a brilliant job of showing, and what The Sopranos would go on to solidify a couple of years later, is that being mid-level in the mobster food chain is far from shits and giggles. There's the occasional party and drinks around the house, but the hustle is non-stop and real and you are always looking over your shoulder. And, as Lefty tells Donny, when they send for you, you go in alive, you come out dead, and it's your best friend that does it. What Lefty desperately needs is a friend he can trust and instead he gets Donny. Still, he's not the only one who sees value in Donnie, who soon catches the eye of capo Sonny Black. Michael Madsen being menacing as hell. Anyway, Sonny Black is sick of his soldiers smashing parking meters and hawking knockoff razor blades and dreams of some easy money. He'd also like to not be laughed at by a rival capo, same family or not, Sonny Red and his cronies. This fits nicely with the FBI's plan to incorporate a Miami-based undercover operation into what Pistone is doing, and there's a Florida plan that blows up in their faces, leading to embarrassment for Sonny Black and Lefty realising that there is a rat in their midst. Also, Sonny Red is looking to take out Sonny Black's crew, but Sonny Black beats them to the punch. 
executing Sunny Red, and also Nikki, which is Bruno Kirby, who he suspects is the rat. As the new boss, Sunny Black orders Donnie to kill Sunny Red's son, Bruno, so that Donnie can officially become a made man and a member of the family. Cue the FBI interceding before Donnie actually does anything, and the investigation ends. Donnie is out of the picture. The FBI wastes no time turning up at Sunny Black's hangout to tell them Donnie Brasco was FBI agent Joe Pistone all along. It's bad news for Lefty. In one of my favourite scenes, Lefty leaves behind his valuables before heading to a meeting with his crew. The film implies that's when Lefty meets his maker, but in real life, Ruggiero was arrested and served 11 years in prison before dying from cancer, lung and testicular rather than of the prick. Also, interestingly, in the film, Lefty tells his girlfriend Annette to tell Donnie if it was going to be anyone, I'm glad it was him. And in real life, after Pistone testified against him, Ruggiero actually said, I'll get that motherfucker Donnie if it's the last (laughs) thing I do. So they've tweaked that just a little bit. (laughs) Now, I called it a mobster movie, and it is, but I'd argue it's actually also a film about friendship and loyalty. So I'm keen to hear your thoughts. I think it's all right. I don't think it's brilliant. I thought it was all right when I saw it at the cinema. I thought it was all right when I watched it subsequent times. I think it's all right now. I don't think it's brilliant. It feels like at every stage it's slightly lacking something. Like, for example, the soundtrack, and by that I mean the music as opposed to the the tunes, uh, is really heavy-handed and kind of a bit crap and used a bit too much and I didn't really enjoy it. I feel in some places Mm. it's style over substance. But the thing I noticed most this time is, I mean, love Al Pacino, great performance by Al Pacino. But the thing that I thought here was, he's actually really unsympathetic. He's such a moaning git. All he does is fucking, where's mine? I've earned it. All the work I've done. So to a certain extent, (laughs) I was like, God, are we like, I don't care. I don't actually really care about Lefty, which I hadn't really noticed before. No, I agree with you. He's kind of the poorly walnuts in that he's always like, well, why aren't I doing better than I am doing? Yeah. But I feel that they help you feel sorry for him, which I think is testament to Pacino's performance. I mean, he is a sad sack, but I kind of feel like, oh, he doesn't really want to be in this anymore, but there's no escape. Yeah, maybe I had that before, but I didn't have it this time. I should have had it before because, like, he's killed 26 people, as Mm. he says, over and over again, and that number probably goes up, doesn't it, during it. But... Yeah, I just found him to be massively unsympathetic. Fair enough. Jen? I was underwhelmed by it, to be honest. I found it didn't hold my attention that well. That can happen for all sorts of reasons, but generally it's not a great sign if you're not that bothered (laughs) about watching, you know, if you go off and make a cup of tea and leave it still running and come back, for example. I found it very complicated, and that is not because I'm thick and can't deal with complicated things. So again, that's probably more about my frame of mind than the actual film. What I found hardest to overcome, actually, was that, like, Johnny Depp, obviously this is like the mega heartthrob stage and obviously you know separate the art from the artist etc etc and all of the subsequent things that have like come out about Johnny Depp and perhaps we'll talk about this in more detail or not I don't know but um I found it hard not to watch him as like young beautiful Johnny Depp and think of think about like bag of spanners Johnny Depp and I also found it really hard to watch Madsen and not think about him as celebrity big brother Madsen 
rather than and I just I couldn't stop thinking it's such a shame so many actors in this made such bad life choices. <laughs> it was just like my overriding thought throughout. And, and they were making quite bad life choices, in it? Exactly. It was certainly quite hard to watch him punch his wife in yes. the face mm, in yeah. this. Also, as part of that, I didn't find any of them that sympathetic because, as Hannah says, Al Pacino uh, is lefty, rather, is a cold-blooded killer. And... I mean, you do a bit, because obviously he's presented as, like, you're supposed to feel sorry for him, so you can't help feel a bit sorry for him. But I did find all of them to be really unsympathetic characters, so I didn't particularly warm to any of them. I thought Donnie Brasco was a fucking prick. I don't know if you're supposed to think that or not, but yeah. My favourite scene in the whole thing is the explanation of Forget About It, because it's got... Yeah, yeah, that was good. Just in two tiny roles... Paul Giamatti and Tim Blake Nelson. It's incredible just sitting there and that's the only bit that they're in it, just having explained to them. So, And I thought that's interesting. I had an Italian housemate once who taught me, like, because Italians do lots of things with their hands when they're talking and she explained, like, what some of these things mean to uh, mean. For uh, For the listener, I'm brushing under my chin in an aggressive fashion. I can't remember exactly what that means, but it's not good. Fuck off basically <laughs> so i didn't i enjoyed the forget about it scene because also i was a bit like i just kept thinking of um mickey blue eyes <laughs> hugh grant all over this then <laughs> i don't know what mickey blue eyes is it's kind of kitchen sink gangster and i think that was heightened for me by the fact that we've got a new telly and it makes everything look like daytime tv <laughs> and so it did feel very kitchen sink uh, i can see why it's a bit marmitey have you shifted then, Hannah, more to not liking it? Yeah, I would say, yeah. But I, I would say that as a rule for most gangsters. I mean, with the exception, obviously, of The Sopranos, which is still incredible. Yeah. In fact, I tell you what, most of the problems... It was Sopranos that ruined gangster films for me, actually, with mm-hmm. with the exception, obviously, of The Godfather Part Two, which is still the most incredible thing. Because it's such a deep dive into it, and obviously it can be because it takes part like over probably a hundred hours or something. Everything else always feels quite slight because it doesn't have that depth. Spoilers coming. How long did it take for Christopher and Tony's relationship to fall apart? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because there's a slow inevitability in everything in gangster films. You almost know at the end what's going to happen. You know really, really soon that his relationship with Christopher means that eventually it can only end one way. But it takes like seven fucking years for it to happen or something. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, like you can't, films can't offer that level of, of substance. So I have, yeah... Kind of. I mean, I like The Departed, but The Departed comes at it from a different angle, really. And it has quite clear delineation of who is good, good guys and who is bad guys. Because a lot of gangster stuff is an attempt to make you think that gangsters are cool. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I do think in, in Donnie Brasco, they're not doing that. I quite like that it's not glamorising the gangster no, lifestyle not. as much as, say, Casino or a film of that ilk. Yeah. No, I agree with that. It's it doesn't seem as like fun and jolly, and you know you don't see all the like perks of the job so much um, as you do in even Goodfellas and and things like that. So no, mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think like I don't know. I used to love a gangster film, and but I did as I said when we watched Flicking again. I found it like I found Goodfellas more boring than I have done previously when I watched it. I think part of it is like 
I think we talked about it at the time, they do tend to be more of a sort of exploration of the male mm. psyche and toxic masculinity and stuff like that. And I think over time I've become a bit more like, oh, I don't really care. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Not sure I need to see this on the screen. It's just outside my window. I've got my own shit to think about, guys. Sorry. <laughs> and the problem is that the cliche of the woman being at home saying, when are you coming home, is so overdone in literally everything that involves cops or gangsters or whatever, spies, you know, that Anne Hesh's character... What's she called? She called Maggie? Maggie. Maggie. Mm. She actually has a fucking point, but because it fits in with that cliche, it just feels like, oh, great, here's another moaning woman. She's probably the most sympathetic character in the oh. film. Oh, yeah. Well, it don't take much, does it? Oh, well, no, exactly. But I do think that, I think when Joe Stone wrote his book, he very much was putting himself forward as a hero. And I don't I don't think that comes across in Donnie Brasco. I don't think no, of Donnie as a hero. And in fact, for me, they could lose that last bit of the film where we see him get his award and like we see that she stayed with him. Because, I, I mean, she did in real life and they now live in witness protection. I actually thought that it was quite good because I thought that because they obviously the way they show it is spoiler alerts that um well we've already done this haven't we the way they show it is that Lefty goes off to to be killed basically by his crew and I sort of thought the point they were trying to make is like five hundred dollars for life yeah and also something else that my opinion will have changed on probably since I saw this or just because I would have had more information please say undercover. Yeah, is, you know, what happened to Helen Steele and women like her has really changed my opinion on the morality of what happens in this. Totally. I think I'd like to watch Donnie Brasco purely from Maggie's point of view. I mean, to be clear to anyone who doesn't know, Helen Steele was one of the women who was, I mean, I was going to say was sexually assaulted, I suppose, theoretically, possibly even raped in the way that the law goes by a police officer pretending to be interested in her and being her boyfriend and was actually just spying on left-wing activists. And, I mean, one woman in that was actually... He got her pregnant, didn't yeah, he? Cop got kids. a woman pregnant. I mean, yeah, the morality of it is iffy as fuck, which I hadn't really put a lot of thought into. Not in the case of this, because they deserve to be spied on, but in the repercussions for his family, because she's not going to see her family again if they're in witness protection, is she? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. And I think what Jen just said as well about $500 for a life, and you mean lefty, and I totally get that, and that is the way the film implies it. But it's it's not just one life, is it? There's so many lives yeah. that get ruined and so many innocent parties, particularly yeah. his wife and kids. I kind of thought that the whole moral of it really was like summed up in that last scene, which was essentially, was it really worth it? Agree. I think the tone of that film is, you know, the speed at which they dispatch Bruno Kirby and everything else that he's yeah. done means nothing is kind of reflected in the speed at which they dispatch Johnny Depp. Here's your reward and off they march out yeah. again. You are just... Pawns in a game. Yeah, you are a low-level cog in a machine yeah. and while you're doing what we want, we will support you. But once you're gone, you're gone. Or once we have no more use for you, you yeah. are gone. Lads... Rated or dated? I don't think it's dated. No. To be honest. I mean, it's set in the 70s anyway, so how could it be dated? I'm, I'm going to say it's rated. It's just, it's a seven. It's a six or a seven out of a ten for me. It's It goes no higher than that. Yeah, I think I'd say the same. Uh, it's not dated. It just didn't really hold my attention that well. So, 
you know, this would be the time where I say it's none of the above. But for the purposes of this, I will say it's rated, but a low level rated as Hannah has. Yeah, I'm going to say rated, but with the caveat that I'm not ever going to watch that film again. Hannah, I think it's you next week. Uh, Are we going to try and get higher on the rated scale? Yeah, Anaconda, no. (laughs) Anaconda's not for another couple of weeks. We are going all the way back to 1987. We're going to be watching something that is definitely cult, but I somehow have managed to avoid seeing it. Have you never seen it? My whole life, I've never seen it, which is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I have never seen it the whole way through either. Wowzers. Oh, this is going to be interesting. Standard issue for all women.